Thank you, Joe. That was wonderful. Uh, well, hello, everyone. If we haven't got the pleasure to meet, my name is Cassie Farron. Alex and I, we co-lead pastor this church together, and it's so good to see your wonderful faces today. Um, real quick note on the retreats. You know, you may be like, wow, you guys like to take a lot of trips. Um, Alex and I have been formed and shaped probably more through intentional time with mentors and those that are a little ahead of us in the spiritual journey on retreats like that than other things. Retreats have a way of accelerating spiritual growth, unlike other things. Taking time to just say, I'm going to step away for a little bit to focus on God and my relationship with him, and maybe in the case of marriage retreat, my spouse. And so we've got several different options for that this year. That marriage retreat that was mentioned earlier, um, we're going to have that mission trip coming up here in the fall. And also, uh, we haven't announced all the details for this yet, but we're going to be doing a prayer retreat. It's open for all. That's also going to be in the fall as well, towards the end of September. Uh, that'll give us a few days to step back, to get out of just the regular rhythm of doing and of life, and to focus a little bit more on making space for Jesus. And so uh, I'd encourage you kind of be thinking about those and maybe uh, what you would want to do with your time and your year, uh, as those things I think can be incredible catalysts, uh, starters for us uh, in our spiritual journey. Uh, well, very quickly here today, I want to open with a little story. So anybody ever read Fault in Our Stars in high school? Especially for those that would identify as like millennials in the room, that was like the go-to book. I have to confess, I did not read it. I think there was a movie that came out recently, uh, but I'm familiar enough with it to know what it is and what it's about. Uh, it is written by a man named John Green, and it may interest you to know, especially if you've read the book, that he actually started out in college and graduated with a double major in English and Religious Studies. He had the intention of going to get his master's in divinity and actually spending the rest of his life pursuing God vocationally. He actually graduated from college and embarked on six months of chaplaincy ministry in a children's hospital prior to then embarking on this divinity journey. And he actually writes about this experience in an essay he entitled Googling Oh, are we still good? Yeah. In an essay entitled Googling Strangers. And in this essay, he tells a story of a young three-year-old boy who gets wheeled into this children's hospital, into an emergency room, burns covering his entire body, screaming out in agony. And he writes this. Despite the severity of his injuries, the child was conscious and in terrible pain. The anguish was overwhelming, the smell of burns, the piercing screams that accompanied this little boy's every breath. Someone shouted, Chaplain, the scissors behind you. And in a daze, I brought them the scissors. Someone shouted, Chaplain, the parents. And I realized that next to me, the little boy's parents were screaming, trying to get at their kid. But the doctors and the paramedics and the nurses needed enough space to work. And so as the chaplain, I had to ask the parents to step back. 
And the next thing I knew, I was in a windowless family room in the emergency department. The room where they put you on the worst night of your life. It was quiet, except for the crying of the couple across from me, the boy's parents. You know, during my training, they told me that half of marriages end within a couple years of losing a child. And aware of this weekly, I asked the parents if they wanted to pray. And the woman shook her head, no. You know, many of us, myself included, I think, can resonate with this woman's response. The last thing that many of us want to do in seasons and moments of suffering is to pray. When suffering inevitably breaks down the door to our lives, approaching God can feel unsafe, it can feel useless, it can feel pointless, it can feel complicated. There are too many things to say, and there, there are no words. There are so many questions to ask, and yet there are so few answers. The depth of our pain renders us unable to speak, and we realize we can't pray because if we're just being honest, we don't trust God. Martin Luther actually calls these moments the left hand of God. In seasons where devastation, when our confidence in God withers and dies, becomes so very depressing. When God becomes foreign, confusing, like a right-handed person trying to just use their left, we begin wondering, why, God, are you left-handed? Oh, left-handed God. And so the question remains, what do we do, right? What do we do when we no longer want to pray? When there are no longer words, how do we pray in the seasons of wilderness and of suffering? If you were here with us last week, you know that we just embarked on a sermon series entitled Life in the Wilderness. And Alex actually took some time to explain why the Lenten season, the season between Ash Wednesday, which was this Wednesday, and Easter, uh, are like the wilderness or akin to the wilderness, the 40 days even that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And if you missed that, I would suggest you go back because it kind of outlined uh, our call to you as individuals and as a church uh, to join together in this season of Lent. But as evidenced by Alex's teaching last week, the Western church has become very familiar with the God of the mountaintop, the first song that we sang today, and not very familiar with the God of the valley, the second song we sang today. And because of this, as individuals, as Jesus followers, when we enter moments of suffering, we have no idea what to do. Not learned, right? There's been no theology, no groundwork, no practice for what it looks like to have God very present and very with us in wilderness or valley seasons. 
Uh, you may have noticed prior to the sermon series, we spent five weeks on prayer, uh, specifically kind of going through the Lord's Prayer. And that was not accidental because uh, we actually wanted to set up this series with uh, that understanding or those teachings on prayer. But you will notice that during that sermon series, we did not talk about what we do when we don't want to pray. <laughs> we didn't talk about what to do when we have no words. When someone asks us, can I pray with you? And all we can do is shake our head no. But fear not, that's what today's for. <laughs> and so today, I don't have time to develop a full theology of suffering. In fact, I don't know that we have lifetimes enough to do that. There's a lot of great books out there. I can give you some recommendations a little bit later. But what I do want to do is specifically look at the life of Jesus to understand a little bit more about suffering and about prayer. And when we look at Jesus and when we look at the scriptures, we learn a few interesting things. And the first one is this. We learn that Jesus suffered like a lot. In fact, if you were to ask those of the early church, they would tell you that we can come to know God by knowing Jesus as the man of sorrows. And we actually read this, and this idea comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, in which the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about who that Savior will be. And notice the way that he describes Christ. It says, picking up in verse 5, He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus suffered a lot. You know, uh, within the context of microchurches, uh, which is our groups that meet throughout the week, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And you, uh, if you've been with us in microchurch, you might recall this passage. But early on in Luke, in fact, in Luke 2, we learn of this story where Jesus, who's 12 years old, is speaking with the religious leaders in the temple, and his parents don't know that he's gone to do that, and they lose him. And after searching for a few days, Mary and Joseph, they finally find him. And Mary looks at him and says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And as our microchurch was reading the scriptures, we were contemplating it. Uh, one of the members in our group, who's also a high school teacher, latched on to this idea of Jesus as like a real human. There's nothing like this story to remind you that Jesus stressed out his parents. That he was like a normal middle school boy that was potentially smelly, probably a little bit awkward, maybe silly at times, right? All those things we know to be true about those middle school years. And to be honest, it captivated us as a microchurch to be reminded of how human Jesus was. You know, I think one of the greatest temptations that we face, especially as Western Christians, is to forget that Jesus really was human. Often in accepting Jesus as fully God, as the Savior of the world, we have a hard time believing that he really experienced the things that we experience. Like, was it really as hard for him as it was for us? 
And here's the thing, when we examine Christian orthodoxy, what's been believed for thousands of years, and when we look at the scriptures, we know and understand that Jesus experienced everything in the same way that we did. We know that from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. We know that his body ached as ours aches. We know that at times his emotions were frazzled and raw as ours are so often the same. We know that he was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted. We know that he suffered just as we suffer. Suffering was not made easier for Jesus because he was God. Jesus' suffering is just as hard as the suffering that we experience day to day, year to year, decade to decade. We see this throughout the Gospels. I think oftentimes people think, well, Jesus really only suffered when he died on the cross. Oh, no, no. We see this throughout his life. Although the scriptures are not clear regarding Jesus' earthly father, we can assume, based on John chapter 19, that Joseph likely died sometime in between Jesus' preteen years and between the beginning of his ministry, before his ministry started. Jesus knew the pain of losing an earthly father way too early. I know Jesus had to have been pained for Joseph to not see some of the best moments of his life. The things that he was most proud of, most looking forward to. Jesus knew the pain of losing an earthly father way too early. Of comforting a mom who desperately missed her husband. We learn, actually, in several of the gospel accounts that Jesus' own town could not accept his sonship, that he was the Son of God. And I think we forget that those that knew him the longest, his neighbors, his friends, his co-workers, rejected him. Not only that, they decided to throw him off a cliff deeming his words to be blasphemous. They could not reconcile the Jesus that they knew growing up with the person that he said he was, the Son of God. How hurtful. How painful. It's apparent from Scripture that Jesus was very close to his cousin, John the Baptist. They grew up together, right? Effectively, as brothers, we know they were around the same age. And yet, before he passed his 30s, John the Baptist is horrifically beheaded, and Jesus is told about it. And we know that he grieved the loss of his brother, his friend, his cousin, so much. Many of us know the story of Jesus' crucifixion in which he was betrayed by his disciples, yes, All fled, all denied him. But have you thought about the fact that Jesus knew that Judas was going to commit suicide? That he knew the effects, the destruction, the hurt that that left? People's lives in his life. That he was going to lose a friend to one of the worst ways to die. 
And to add, on top of all of this, Jesus knew that he was going to die prematurely, right? Compared to our standards, at least. He's going to die at the mere age of 33. Yikes. I have so little time to spend with my friends and my family. That puts Alex at maybe two and a half more years of living. So little time here on earth. Jesus was well acquainted with the phrase, life is too short. He knew the nature of inevitable death and dying. When we examine the scriptures, we find a savior, a man who is well acquainted with sorrow and suffering. Maybe even more so than you find yourself at 33 years of living. But when we examine the scriptures, we also see that Jesus had a very specific way of responding to that suffering over and over and over again. Jesus routinely responded to suffering with prayer. We see this in Matthew chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. As he's grieving the loss of John the Baptist, it says, King Herod sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus hears of his cousin's gruesome death. And his first response, it's not to numb with the pain with food or drink or distraction. His first response is to go off by himself and pray. We see Jesus similarly in the midst of exhaustion approach God in prayer over and over. I cannot fathom the depth of exhaustion that Jesus must have felt on a regular basis. The toll of just simply travel. Like there were no cars back then. He was very poor. He did not own a horse. The hundreds of miles he walked. The pain in his feet. The pain in his back from consistently sleeping, probably in a tent on the ground. The sweat that would cling, the smell, the heat. Oh God, the heat, right? No air conditioning. The endless lines of people coming to see him to be healed. Those days had to have been long, because if I'm Jesus, I can't bear to send like one person away, right? They lined up person after person after person after person, and hour after hour after hour after go by. I can't imagine, even as an extrovert, the amount of exhaustion I would feel as crowds just persistently follow me. Like there's no moment of isolation or crawling into myself. Like everyone's always looking at me, always around, somebody always needs something. I can't imagine the amount of exhaustion from the countless sermons, the amount of preparation, the lack of this thing to carry my voice. How tired his throat must have been. 
I can't fathom the toll that this kind of work took on his body day in and day out. And yet we consistently see in moments of suffering, exhaustion, he prays. We see this in John chapter 5, verse 15 through 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him. He became more famous, more busy. There was more to do. Many came to be healed of their infirmities, but frequently he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Not nap, pray. <laughs> Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. I'm going to be honest. My desire after preaching a sermon is not to go pray. I'm so sorry. It's to take a nap. He even teaches and demonstrates this rhythm of work rest and prayer to his disciples when he instructs them in Mark chapter 6 31 after a long season of ministry he says come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while we see that Jesus prays during his grief during his exhaustion but he also prays in the midst of extreme anxiety I know from somewhat limited personal experience, as I am a bit more of an anxious-prone individual, uh, that when I am feeling very anxious, the hardest thing to do is to slow down my heart rate, to focus long enough to pray. And yet, in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 45, the, verse that, the verses that Joe read earlier, we see that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the height of his anxiety and suffering, he prays. Luke actually writes about this, again, picking up in verse 39. It says, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Who in agony prays more earnestly? Not me. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. As the full weight of God's will for Jesus to be tortured, crucified, and killed turned over to the darkness, as that will descends upon Jesus. He is in a kind of mental torment that I don't think any of us will ever experience in this lifetime. He cries out, asking God if there is any other way. Like, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I was misguided. Maybe you're going to show up in the 11th hour as you did for Abraham and Isaac. 
And with all of these thoughts swirling in his head, Jesus, in mental agony, begins sweating big drops of blood. This may seem like a very strange detail for the doctor, Luke, to include in his gospel account, but we actually know, based on modern science, that this is a thing. That under extreme duress and anxiety, people can begin to sweat blood. This is important for us to begin to understand the full implication of Jesus' duress and anxiety here. Like, how did he continue to pray? How did he continue to cry out to God? How he, did he accept the Father's will? These questions remind me of the question that we started out with today. How pray in seasons of wilderness or suffering when it seems impossible? When our anxieties loom so large, when our grief is so deep, when our exhaustion is so debilitating, how do we do it? I think the answer can actually be found in verse 39. The first verse that we read today, it says this about Jesus. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. As was his practice. As was his habit. As it was for him to regularly do. In Jesus' greatest moment of suffering, I believe he can pray because he practiced it over and over and over and over again. The following is not factual, but I would like to practice a little imagination and imagine that Jesus came to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane when he lost his father. When he was rejected by all those he knew and grew up with in Nazareth. When he was exhausted from working a 14-hour day. When John died. In Jesus' greatest moment of suffering, in his greatest moment of anxiety, he can pray because he practiced it. Worship team, if you would go ahead and join me. You know, I began today with the story of a suffering parent and a chaplain who was at a loss as to what to do. But I did not finish that story. The now acclaimed author, John Green, actually cites his experience as a chaplain and even this particular story as the reason why he lost his faith and decided to give up on his career becoming a full-time in ministry. He couldn't reconcile the suffering that he had seen in the ER with a God of love. And yet, despite his loss of faith, he continued to remember and think on and pray for this boy regularly. So much so that several years later, out of curiosity, he Googled this young man's name. Not only to find that he was alive and thriving, but that he had experienced some severe burns that would affect him for the rest of his life. 
And so he decided to call up this young man, and you can actually go and listen uh, to podcasts. You can go listen to his podcast interview with this young man. But he asked him to tell him a little bit about the experience. And this boy, now young man, who still suffers quite a great deal, talks about how that moment in the ER kicked off a series of events that led him and his family back to Jesus. And in the podcast, it's evident that he wants John to come to know Jesus again too. And here's the lesson. Suffering can draw us away from God, but it can also draw us closer to Isn't that what we see in the life of Jesus? The one person in this world who you would think would be spared of suffering, the Son of God continues to suffer over and over and over again, and he draws closer and closer to God. So close that in his hour of greatest need, he can say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Suffering did not draw Jesus away from God. It drew him closer. And that is what Lent is all about. Lent provides the perfect opportunity for us to practice drawing closer to God in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our wilderness. Like Jesus, in our greatest moments of suffering, may we too be able to pray because we practiced it, because we prepared. And so just briefly, as we work to end our time here today, I want to leave us with just two things that we can begin to do in this Lenten journey, in this season, to practice praying in the wilderness, to practice praying in the wilderness. And the first one is this. It may seem a little counterintuitive, but important nonetheless. Abstinence. And I don't just mean how we traditionally think about it, right? In the sense of growing up in school. I mean just simply, what am I abstaining from? In seasons of wilderness and suffering, our first instinct is to numb the pain. Our first instinct is to dull the emotions, whether that's sleeping, dancing, drinking, drugs, sex, TV, movies, going to the bar, going for a drive, fretting, tweeting, posting, you fill in the blank. Our temptation when we suffer is to numb. And abstinence is a call to give up our numbing of choice. What is it in life right now that you go to when you don't want to feel, when you don't want to think, when you don't want to draw closer to God because it hurts? What's that thing? Identify it, and I'd ask, what would it look like to give it up through this Lenten season? For Alex and I, that is TV and movies. That is the thing we go to after a long day to numb the emotions, to shut it off, to not have to think. And so every Lenten season, that is the thing we give up. And it is hard. Do not get me wrong. I swear we go through withdrawals every year. There'll be moments where you mess up, right? Where you go back to the thing, where you relapse. But keep doing it. Keep pressing forward. 
keep trying. Tell someone about it. Have them help you stay accountable to it. And in getting rid of that thing that numbs you, I guarantee you, you will find more moments to draw closer to God. You're going to have more time. You're going to have more space. The second is this, the Lord's Prayer. You know, there is a method to Alex and I's madness. We didn't just preach five weeks on prayer by haps and stance before going into Lent. There was a purpose, there was a reason to it. For those of you that were here for most of that sermon series, you'll recall the beginning of that passage in verse 1. I believe it's Luke chapter 4. It says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now again, this is purely speculation, but could it be that that certain place was Mount Olives? The place that he was accustomed to going to and praying. The place that his disciples saw him praying and thought, wow, there's something so compelling about his prayer. I want to know how to do it. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Could it be that Jesus, in that Garden of Gethsemane moment, is patterning his prayer off the same prayer he gave us? Father, hallowed be your name. We know he cries out, Father, right? Reminding himself of the love of his God, of his presence. Letting the angels minister to him being aware of his love. Your kingdom come. Could it be that as Jesus began to reconcile the fact that Jesus' kingdom coming meant his dying on the cross, he was interceding for his disciples, interceding for the Roman guards, for Pilate, for the men that would sit on his left and on his right as he hung on that cross. Give us each day our daily bread. We know that Jesus petitions God for his needs because he asks him in verse 42, take this cup from me. Right? I don't want to suffer. God, if there's any other way, I don't want to do it. Here's my request. Here's my demand. Here's my petition. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us right? God is our Jesus, fully God and fully human. There were no sins that he needed to be forgiven of, but could he have been thinking about the forgiveness that would result from his death? The forgiveness that would spread like a wildfire because of his willingness to die on that cross. All for forgiveness that would be reiterated on and on and on for centuries to come because of vision in that moment. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We know that Jesus instructs his disciples to contend, to pray against the darkness, to pray against temptation, and I imagine in that moment he's doing the same. God, there's so much darkness. There's so much evil. It's threatening to envelop me. 
I pray against the enemy. I pray against his schemes. I'm very aware of the war that's going on around me right now. God, help me to wage it. And as the full reality of that darkness descends upon him, he begins to sweat those big old big drops of blood. This is all conjecture. This is not gospel, but I think it's a helpful practice nonetheless. One that we can exercise. As we journey through Lent, through the wilderness together, may we learn what it is like to practice prayer by abstaining from distraction and patterning our prayers from the Lord's prayer. May we learn what it is like to routinely respond to suffering with prayer. So in those moments of darkness, in those future in those future moments of great suffering, we know what to do as we've done it before. I want to leave you with a quote from Tish Harrison Ward from her book Prayer in the Night. If today you're really captured by this idea of praying through suffering, I would encourage you to read it. It's probably one of the most thoughtful beautiful, raw, authentic books I've read on the subject. But she says this. In the end, darkness is not explained, but it is defeated. Night is not justified or solved, but it is endured until light overcomes it and it is no more. In the meantime, we do not stop asking our questions of God. He allows us to ask them when we need to because he loves us. And we bring our perplexity into the prayers and the practices of the church so that we can shape and direct our own questions. And through its prayers, practices, and gathered worship, the church tells us over and over again, this is what God is like. This is his name. This is how you know seal. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that I'm pretty bad at this myself. That moments of seasons, or excuse me, moments and seasons of suffering, many a times the last thing I want to do is pray. And yet, God, through your son Jesus, you patterned this. In many ways, this is how you coped through this human life. And so, Lord, teach us. May we learn what it's like to lean into you, to be drawn closer by suffering, and not to be pushed away. May we, in moments of mental torment and agony, be able to focus on you, to pattern your prayer, to cry out to you as Father, to pray for your kingdom, to intercede for those around us, to offer our raw desires to you.
confess of our many failures and to contend with the very real darkness that threatens to creep into our lives. May we know what it's like to be one with the suffering Savior, the man of many sorrows. It's in your name we pray. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.